was a handwritten letter, just words on a piece of paper, produced by special companies in early modern era Venice. Aviso is an Italian word that roughly translates to something like notice or announcement or warning, and avisi were letters delivered to a list of customers, generally containing announcements or warnings or similar information of some kind. So back when Venice was ruled by what amounted to merchant kings and merchant families, and just after the apex of their height of power and influence, from around 1500 until 1700 AD, there were companies that collected information about war, politics, the dealings of leaders and top merchants, and other aspects of what we might broadly consider to be current events at the time in places connected to the Venetian economy. Avisi actually originated in the Roman Empire as public notices that were also called acta diurna, which were carved into metal or stone, posted in plain view at set locations, so that normal people would know what was expected of them, which wars were currently being fought, and other things of that nature. Private avisi also existed at that time, allowing higher-ups to essentially communicate amongst themselves, staying informed at a level the normal person could not expect to access at that time. And the later monetized Venetian model was an updated version of that, allowing not just governors and generals to have that increased sprawling situational awareness, but relatively normal merchants of all shapes and sizes as well. Similar notices for society's upper classes existed in China during the late Han Dynasty, so the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD, and the so-called Dibao which translates as reports from the official residences, shared information about political happenings, news about markets and warfare, and were limited to the political class, though there were reportedly different editions of this letter meant for different layers of the imperial bureaucracy. Back in Venice, the Avisi evolved into a cheaper-to-produce monthly news sheet that was more concise and less florid than the previous iterations of such letters, and which was produced on scale so that they could be sold at a lower price, and thus to a larger audience. These cheaper versions of the Avisi cost only one small coin, called a gazette, and these letters eventually took on that same name, gazette. Important to note here is that, for the majority of history around the world, humans shared information primarily orally. Even when we developed writing and then developed less cumbersome means of sharing that writing, papyrus and paper, both of which were far more portable than tablets, we were still limited in scale and reach by the relative expense of that paper, the relative dearth of illiterate people, it was only a small portion of the population that could read or write, in most societies around the world anyway, kind of a chicken-in-the-egg problem because there was not much to read or write in most people's environment at that point. And because of these limitations, it made sense that many societies would have what amounted to town criers instead of more formal news distribution services. People who would get information from a central source, usually the government, and then go shout that information in a public square. Anyone within range could hear the news, and then listeners who heard it passed it from person to person until most people knew. It wasn't the most efficient model of information distribution in the world, but it was what we could do. It was what we could manage. Until, that is, industrialized production and movable type showed up in Europe, 
both pieces of technology having also been developed elsewhere, in some cases far earlier, but not having been combined or used in this specific way. And when these collections of technologies were slammed together at that place in time, they eventually led to the Industrial Revolution, which was partially predicated on the fact that paper could be produced on scale, the cost of books and pamphlets and things of that nature dropping substantially, and the availability of movable type, the ability to cast little metal letters to set them up on page-sized panels and then apply ink to those panels so you could lay out a page once and then replicate it as many times as you wanted very quickly at a very low cost. All of that changed everything in regards to access to information and to the distribution of different types of information. These technologies were initially applied to the production of Bibles, which was a serious moneymaker and which unto itself led to some immense consequences, like the Protestant Reformation. But they also enabled the creation of more cheaply available disseminators of news, which were, at times, similar to what you might have found in Venetian Avizi, but which also, very quickly, became seen as an excellent way to slander one's political or personal opponents, to pitch new religions or snake oil products to a newly literate and somewhat gullible population because anything written was still considered to be something like the news from the gods on high, or some monarch. So these news sheets, these updated gazettes, became at times a faster, more efficient means of spreading gossip and misinformation. The very first newspaper in the American colonies, which was called Public Occurrences Both Foreign and Domestic, was banned by the British government after publishing just one edition in 1690, but another called the Boston News Letter, hyphenated as in a letter containing news, was allowed to go forward by these same rulers in 1704. And as a result, their four-page weekly publication shared news from Britain with American colonists, and it became the center of political thinking as well, until the Pennsylvania Evening Post arrived in 1783, 79 years later, after the United States had won the Revolutionary War and had its independence officially acknowledged by Britain. The press in the United States had a great deal more and more varied voices from that point forward, but in the 18th century in particular, so-called yellow journalism took hold in the United States and in many other places around the world, turning these news sheets primarily into something closer to scandal-chasing entertainment. Sensationalist stories, many of them completely made up, were emblazoned across the above-the-fold front pages. It wasn't until just before World War II that fact-based, as unbiased as possible journalism regained favor in many countries, in part as a consequence of the aftermath of World War I, and in part because newspapers at this point had begun to be reinvigorated and newly competitive through financial support from wealthy business people who were buying up dozens or hundreds of smaller news entities to turn them into newly designated media companies companies that spanned multiple types of media, from the emerging world of radio to traditional papers, alongside higher-end magazines and anything else they could use to share useful data, expose corruption in politics, and yes, to report on gossip and create rumor out of nothing at times. It was around this time that many of these papers formalized journalistic best practices, determined modern categories of news, and segmented their publications into quicker-reported news pieces, longer-format features, and opinion-based editorials and op-eds, the latter short for opposite the editorial page, 
as these smaller pieces were often featured, in the same spread as the editorial, which was written by the paper's editorial board. But both segments were opinions, rather than raw, journalism-focused news. What I'd like to talk about today are some echoes from the past that have reappeared in the world of journalism, with similarly large reverberations that are taking this industry in some very different, and at times quite troublesome, directions. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled, Warren Buffett said newspapers were going to disappear. Now they've disappeared from his portfolio. Warren Buffett is one of the wealthiest people on the planet, with a personal net worth of over $80 billion, which puts him in third place as of the end of 2019, according to Forbes magazine, after Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, the founders of Amazon and Microsoft, respectively. And he's followed closely by Bernard Arnault and family in fourth place, the owners of about 70 brands ranging from Louis Vuitton to Sephora, and Carlos Slim and family, which owns Mexico's biggest mobile telecom company, coming in at fifth place. So part of why people care about what Buffett says is because of that wealth, but part of why his predictions about some industries in particular, perhaps even more so than those on these Forbes lists who have more money than him, is that he's sometimes called the Oracle of Omaha for his upbringing and residence in Omaha, Nebraska, and for his reputed knack for figuring out which way the market will turn next. And when I say market, I mean the stock market. And the holding company he founded, Berkshire Hathaway, is the vehicle through which he typically demonstrates his confidence in a particular industry or company. And this holding company completely owns Dairy Queen, Geico, Duracell, Fruit of the Loom, Pampered Chef, NetJets, and many other companies across a fairly diverse collection of industries, alongside shares of Kraft Heinz, American Express, Wells Fargo, Coca-Cola, Bank of America, and Apple, ranging from just over 5% ownership of Apple to nearly 27% of Kraft Heinz. So the man is up to his eyebrows in investments of all kinds, and each time he writes a public letter or makes a hefty new investment, the stock market shifts, and the world of investors pays attention, wondering if this will be one of his relatively few blunders, or a legitimate sage-like moment in which he saw something coming and capitalized on it, before anyone else even knew where to look. This particular story is about Buffett's move at the tail end of January 2020 to sell off his newspaper holdings, which include 31 newspapers and their associated collection of dailies, weeklies, and weekend periodicals, to a company called Lee Enterprises, an Iowa-based public media company that I'll talk more about in a few minutes. This sale was preceded by a few years of Buffett's dissatisfaction with the newspaper industry as advertising continued to shift online, draining most newspapers of one of their most leaned-upon sources of revenue, and as those online ads then shifted ever more toward Google and Facebook, which combined own 75% of online ad revenue the remainder of which is being quickly gobbled up by Amazon, which is projected to have claimed nearly 9% of U.S.-based digital advertising dollars in 2019, up from not quite 7% in 2018, putting them on a much more rapid growth trajectory than either of those other two major tech industry behemoths in the advertising space. Whomever wins that particular three-way tussle, though, newspapers lose. 
Those ad dollars are drying up following a similar course as classified ad revenue did back in the early 2000s, when Craigslist first emerged and started to pull that profit rug out from under traditional media entities. Since that time, around 2004, about 20% of all U.S.-based newspapers have shut down, and about 47% of all newspaper industry jobs have disappeared. American newspapers have been slow to pivot, many of them having been completely dependent on ads and classifieds, bolstered a bit by subscription fees and the sticker price paid by in-store buyers. But the emergence of online news has crippled that source of revenue as well, as very few Americans actually pay for news. A recent Pew survey found that only about 14% of people in the U.S. report having ever paid directly for local news in particular. While at the same time, that same survey found that 71% of Americans believe that their local news outlets are doing just fine, are economically flourishing. This misperception exists at a moment in which, again, 20% of all U.S. papers have already closed, 47% of the jobs have completely disappeared, and 225 counties throughout the United States do not have a local paper, and half of all U.S. counties, 1,520 of them, have only one local paper, often just a weekly. According to PEN America, a nonprofit focused on free expression and the advancement of literature and human rights, very much including press freedom, of the remaining 7,200 papers in the United States, at least 1,000 of those are what are called ghost papers that are so broke they're unable to do much in the way of original reporting, something that is vital for local papers in particular, because otherwise, I mean, what's the point? Any paper can buy the right to republish AP or Reuters news, and such articles are easy to get online. But information about local elections, local issues, things of that nature, it's unlikely that lacking a local press, anyone living in the area will be aware of such things, especially through the comparably unbiased lens that local journalism is meant to offer. All that in mind, it makes sense that Buffett might decide to unload his company's newspaper-based media components for a tidy $140 million while he is able to unload them for something. It makes sense, too, that they would unload it to Lee Enterprises, a company that, for about a year and a half, has been managing these same newspaper assets on Berkshire Hathaway's behalf. Part of that deal, in fact, involves Lee Enterprises restructuring their debt so that Berkshire Hathaway can provide them with over half a billion dollars in long-term financing at a 9% annual rate, which means, in essence, that Buffett maybe thinks it'll be more profitable to be in the money-lending business in this case, leaving the newspaper operations to the folks who were managing their newspaper businesses to begin with. That component of this deal is a little bit nuanced too, however. Part of the reason Lee Enterprises wanted to buy these newspaper assets, they revealed after the purchase was announced, was that they'd identified, while managing these newspapers, somewhere between 20 and $25 million worth of cost synergies, another way of saying that they found some fat that can be trimmed away to save some money by combining assets, systems, and things like that, which almost always in practice also means firing employees, reducing benefits, and selling off newspaper-owned assets, especially real estate assets. Part of the larger context in which this specific narrative is playing out is the increasingly common story of local newspapers being bought up by media conglomerates, raided for spare parts, the bulk of the staff fired, and then the pieces, especially the real estate, 
leveraged as valuable assets that can then be utilized in all kinds of ways, from just holding on to those assets and borrowing money against them, to packaging them up and selling them to other entities. Alden Global Capital is perhaps the archetypical deployer of this strategy, having bought up Digital First Media, scooping up 50.1% of the company's shares before using it as a platform from which to do the same to other media companies, attempting a hostile takeover at Gannett, the U.S.'s largest newspaper publisher in terms of daily circulation numbers, and owner of, among others, USA Today, the Tennessean, the Des Moines Register, the Detroit Free Press, and many other regional landmark publications. Gannett did manage to fend them off, but they were the exception, not the rule. Quoting from a Washington Post piece written about Alden, Digital First Media, and the tactics they use, written in early 2019, quote, The tactics employed by Alden and Digital First Media are well chronicled. They buy newspapers already in financial distress, including big city dailies such as the San Jose Mercury News and the Denver Post, reap the cash flow, and lay off editors, reporters, and photographers to boost profits. In a 2018 court case, Alden disclosed it has a series of affiliated real estate companies whose business is focused primarily on efficiently buying, selling, leasing, and redeveloping newspapers' offices and printing plants, end quote. In other words, this conglomerate is focusing on real estate plays, and they have found that weakened newspapers, struggling to figure out how to survive in a rapidly evolving online-focused tech giant-dominated platform-based world, are easy marks with little chance of surviving their takeover efforts and with relatively valuable real estate assets that they can monetize out from under them. That these papers often die off, either in the sense of going bankrupt or more often by becoming shelves of their former selves, unable to do much in the way of original reporting, mostly just regurgitating cheap whatever that they can buy from stock news article markets that sell such things giving these real estate brokers some kind of income flow from online advertising that they can claim alongside the profits that they make from these buildings. That is all perhaps beside the point. It's likely that Alden is a locust swarm that's accidentally killing off an entire portion of an industry, not because it hates that industry, but because it's endlessly hungry, and there are few, if any, incentives for it to stop. That said, this is not a tactic that is limited to mercenary hedge funds like Alden Global Capital. Gannett, the biggest of all U.S. newspaper companies that they tried to take over, has itself sold off more than $150 million worth of its own real estate since 2015 in an effort to make up for lost revenue and stabilize its financial situation. Alden might be innovating in how arguably brutal it is when it comes to asymmetrically utilizing these assets, but they are not alone in seeing the value there and recognizing that it might be used in this alternative way. This is, I suspect, going to be the story of local newspapers in particular for the next several years, as the increasingly weakly positioned small to medium-sized media entities find that they can no longer compete in a way that allows them to continue doing what they've always done, and are therefore required to either innovate faster than they were built to innovate, structurally and in terms of ideological purpose, or are snagged by a holding company, owned by a holding company, owned by Alden, or one of their ilk, fleeced of their resources and left hanging, even worse off than before, mostly just waiting to die. It says something that mere hours after Lee Enterprises announced their purchase of these newspapers from Berkshire Hathaway, 
that Alden purchased 5.9% of Lee Enterprises through one of their holdings, MNG Enterprises. This is a common opening move for them, costing them a mere just over $9 million, but giving them say on the company's board and providing them an opening to either steer that company toward increased asset sell-off activities or to invest still more money, biting off a larger chunk before forcing their hand in that direction if they cannot be convinced. There are several interconnected issues that branch off from this main issue. The issue of news deserts is a substantial one that's difficult to quantify, especially since so many of us get our news from larger, more globalized sources these days. And even those who consume local content tend to get it from social media and or broadcast news, local television stations. That space, too, though, has been seeing a consolidation spree over the past handful of years, with Sinclair Broadcast Group, in particular, owning nearly 200 stations across over 100 U.S. markets, which gives them coverage of over 40% of U.S. households, especially in the southern and midwestern portions of the country. Sinclair has been criticized both for their ambitious gobbling up of stations and for their decidedly conservative political slant, in some cases forcing local networks to broadcast what amount to hard-right political advertisements that are produced by their central news production group, showing viewers what would seem to be news, but which is actually very slanted, borderline propagandistic editorial content. They've recently done pretty well under the current U.S. administration, having lobbied aggressively for the ability to expand their reach even further and their ownership beyond what was previously legal, rules that had been put into place to prevent any one company and any one set of interests from having that much control over what the U.S. population sees. But those sorts of regulations are not terribly popular with conservative politicians in the U.S. at the moment. So while it's definitely an issue that local news is disappearing in some forms due to outright money grabs, it's also an issue that other sources of local news are being bought and kept as decently well-funded news outfits that intentionally slant the news in such a way that it's difficult to see it as being legitimate journalism anymore. And this is something that we see from larger outfits, especially TV news outfits, and across a variety of political views, Some of them slant hard left, some of them slant hard right, some hard one way or the other on just particular issues or shows. But when it comes to local news in the United States right now, conservative views are favored, and in some cases, legitimate journalists have been forced to toe ideological lines that they're not comfortable with due to the lack of any competition that they could jump to, that they could work for instead. They have no choice. And resultantly, people are shown an increasingly consistent view of the world, distorted through the lens of just one political party and ideology. There are some potential rays of light on the horizon for the world of journalism, but many of them are still largely untested, successful for some specific markets and entities, but probably not universally applicable, and will almost certainly leave us with a radically changed journalistic landscape once some of the dust has settled and the survivors are more clearly apparent having reinforced their newly built boundaries. One interesting model that's been popping up in multiple different permutations of late is that of direct funding, but in ways that are distinct from the traditional subscription models. Some variations of this model include upfront funding, Kickstarter style, as was the case with The Correspondent, a news entity that publishes stories that, to use their words, help readers understand the world better, 
Their approach is interesting in that they've carved out entirely new niches for themselves, predicated on their ten founding principles, that they want to be the antidote to the daily news grind, that they do not take ad dollars of any kind, they fight stereotypes, prejudice, and fear-mongering, they don't just cover the problem, they also cover what can be done about it, they collaborate with their audience, they explain their biases, they protect readers' privacy, they aim for inclusivity, they put journalism before financial gain, and they believe in transparency and continued iteration, improving upon their model as they go along. Some of these concepts are widely shared, if not always stated so overtly, by other journalistic entities. Some of them, though, fly in the face of how things are typically done, and as someone who contributed to their initial fundraising round, so I see pretty much all of what they put out, I would argue that the results are a somewhat mixed bag, a little heavy-handed in some places, pretty refreshing in others, but always interesting. It's interesting to see the news covered by journalism professionals who have decided to take a different approach to how they do things at a fairly fundamental level. And that, again, was enabled by an upfront round of crowdfunding, plus an ongoing choose-what-you-pay system that has yet to be proven or disproven as viable over a long period of time. They've only been operational since September of 2019, though they started building the company well before that. In either case, it will be a while before we see how successful this thing ultimately is, I think. Another model along similar lines is what I've come to think of as indie journalism, which usually involves one or a cluster of pro-journalists monetizing their work through platforms like Patreon or Substack or private membership software, which allows them to basically produce work get paid directly by readers, and cut out a lot of the middlemen typically associated with producing professional-grade journalism, including the many complexities that come with advertising and marketing and things like that, because their money comes directly from readers, and their marketing is often done online, often through word of mouth. This is another yet-to-be-proven-over-the-long-haul model, but it does seem to have legs, at least to a limited degree, already. The Information, for instance, is a tech industry-focused news entity that does a great deal of original reporting, and thus can afford to charge $40 a month or $400 a year for their offerings, nearly double that if you want to attend their events as well. They've got a narrow focus and a skilled team, and that has allowed them to build a high paywall, and a lot of people working in industries that require that they know what is happening within the world of tech are happy to pay because their reporting tells them what they need to know. Another publication, called Popular Information, is billed as, quote, a newsletter about politics for people who give a damn, end quote. And it's run by just one guy, a journalist and the founder of Think Progress, named Judd Legum, and it's a left-leaning news publication. The founder has been able to build a reportedly thriving business out of an audience of people willing to pay $6 a month to receive his often very well-investigated, if politically slanted, missives. The most successful and popular of the newsletters presented through the platform that Legum uses, which is called Substack, is an email called Sinicism, which has the tagline, Get Smarter About China, and which is run by a man named Bill Bishop, who left Beijing in 2015, but who has worked in and reported upon China for years. He also produced the Axios China Weekly Newsletter, wrote a China Insider column for a New York Times sub-periodical, and co-founded MarketWatch.com. He started this new newsletter about China, which comes out about four times a week and which costs readers $15 a month to receive, and he's doing quite well with it. Again, it's the most successful paid publication on the Substack network as of 2020. 
Now, the whole of Substack only has about 50,000 paying subscribers as of late 2019 across all of their newsletters, but it does seem to be a growing market. And from the biased perspective of someone who has a couple of publications through their platform myself, it does seem to have some of those early days in podcasting vibes. It's a little bit interesting and exciting, and it seems a little edgy and wild westy, which is part of why I started using it personally. That said, it is difficult to say where things will go next in this space, and we have incredibly little data about how well this sort of thing actually scales, and what kind of longevity we might realistically expect from it. One more model that I think is an interesting combination of other models, and which also may or may not scale, may morph into something else, or may end up not being sustainable in any meaningful way, is an approach being taken by ex-employees of a sports news and commentary website called Deadspin, which was long known to be a place that reported on sports, but also the context in which sports took place, which is part of what led to its success, which in turn led to it being bought in April of 2019. Now, there's a wild and convoluted story about what happened next that involved a TV wrestler, Hulk Hogan, a lawsuit brought by him against a big scandal-chasing media entity called Gawker Media, and behind-the-scenes funding by billionaire Peter Thiel, reportedly as a revenge scheme against Gawker Media. But what it ultimately added up to was the formation of a holding company called G.O. Media that was founded to house a bunch of media companies bought by Great Hill Partners from Univision in April 2019. These properties, which included Gizmodo, Kotaku, Lifehacker, Jezebel, The Onion, Clickhole, and Deadspin, among others, were bought up after the aforementioned lawsuit bankrupted Gawker Media leading to its sale alongside all its other properties, and G.O. bought these brands in the aftermath of that. G.O., according to people involved, was partially there to strip these media companies of their assets, partially there to load them down with overwhelming amounts of ads, and partially to, apparently, condescend to the existing management and writing staff. And some folks at Deadspin, in particular, published an editorial about how unhappy they were with the decisions their new owners were making, saying that they heard the audience about how much it sucked, but that they couldn't do anything about it. Deadspin's staff were told to stick to sports and not talk about anything not directly sports-related by G.O. as one small salvo in this larger conflict, and the staff responded by filling the front page of the site with non-sports stories many of which had been some of the site's most popular stories of all time, as a sort of demonstration that the new owners were wrong. Look, here are the receipts. The non-sports stuff that we make is great and successful. The editor-in-chief of Deadspin was fired as a result of that move, and at least 10 employees resigned alongside him in protest. On January 31st, 2020, several of those former Deadspin writers set up a website called Unnamed Temporary Sports Blog, sponsored by a cloud-based password manager and digital wallet called Dashlane. The idea was to do the work that they used to do, but to do it on a limited basis, as a one-off, just for Super Bowl weekend, sponsored by a tech company that seemed to know a good sponsorship opportunity when it saw one. But already, media industry commentators are heralding this as an indication of what might turn out to be a shift away from what some of them are calling vulture-capitalist-dominant business models. When staff get pissed off at owners who are stripping them for parts and ruining the brand that they worked hard to build, they could just leave, they could quit, and use the credibility that they've built up with their audience as part of that larger media entity to start something new on their own. 
This is a theory that's perhaps especially apt right now because of the mainstreaming of membership models enabled by the Patreons and Substacks of the world, but also the commodification of easy-to-install, robust plugins for WordPress and other content management systems that could allow even a one-person operation with limited technical knowledge to set up their own independent website, posting some of their work for free, some of it premium for those who will pay for it, and their entire revenue model predicated on their audience paying them directly. Rather than using obtrusive ads and data mining, financial industry wonks taking and selling their assets out from under them, and people who don't understand media, aiming for outcomes that are bad for business, optimizing instead for short-term monetary outcomes. Now, this could just be one story among many that turns out well. It's still early days even on this one. It could be that the deadspin narrative continues to have a sad ending, with this one-off sponsorship opportunity remaining just that, none of the people involved managing to make a successful entrepreneurial leap, and the whole situation failing to be a demonstration of what frustrated journalists and other content creators of various sorts could do if they decided to quit their jobs and stopped working for people who didn't care about what they were producing. It could also be that some other model or collection of models arises in the relative near future and ends up becoming the dominant model. I'll be especially interested to see if and how these independent islands of writing and content creation are rigged together, cross-pollination opportunities enabled beyond what is currently allowed by the platforms upon which they're perched. It's nice to see entities like Substack promoting Substack-based newsletters, for instance, but I wonder if we'll see more newsletter writers across all platforms collaborating to promote each other in interesting ways even figuring out ways to allow people to subscribe to multiple newsletters and or podcasts or blogs at a discount, something that is currently lacking in this space and therefore prone to some of the same worries that plague the world of streaming video. At what point will people decide that they've got too many monthly subscriptions and stop paying for new ones? There's almost certainly a ceiling there, and it'll be a difficult moment for this burgeoning space when people begin to reach that ceiling and the limitations of the potential of this collection of models begin to be measured more concretely. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar. I didn't know a whole lot about this book going in. Really, it was just the title that pulled me in. It just sounded somewhat ridiculous and funny and interesting. But the book itself is beautifully written, and the format is interesting too. There are somewhat more normal chapters interspersed with chapters that are letters, and the letters are left by combatants in a long-lasting, potentially infinitely lasting, time war between two groups that exist at the end of time, or the end as defined by these groups at least, who are trying to adjust things and create new branches and truncate other branches so that their side comes into being, ultimately. And so we have two spies and combatants of a sort that are engaging with each other at a distance, that are entirely antagonistic, but as they begin to write to each other and engage, that relationship becomes a whole lot more complex. And the main plot point of the book is them essentially dancing around each other, trying to compete and outdo each other as they fight as part of this larger battle. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. 
You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. You can find some of my publications at exilelifestyle.com, brainlenses.com, and askcolin.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter, and pretty much all the other networks. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.